Well, I've been given the opportunity to introduce Rob Hopkins, and I certainly couldn't pass that up. I met mm -hmm. Rob back in 2005. Uh, he was living in Kinsale, Ireland at the time, and he put on a conference called Fueling the Future. Invited me to come over and speak along with David Holmgren and, and uh, a few other folks. And when I met Rob, I was deeply impressed. I thought, here is a guy who is, who is funny and brilliant and humble and insightful and has some real natural leadership qualities. I thought, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what this guy comes up with as time goes on. So lo and behold, not even a year later, transition emerges. And when I heard about transition, I said, of course, this is exactly what the world needs. It's flexible. It's local. It's empowering. It understands the nature of the problem and gears the solution to the available resources and to, to the problem itself using permaculture principles. What could be better? Amen. And apparently a lot of other people felt the same way because transition took off like wildfire. And hundreds of transition towns, transition initiatives, transition communities emerged over the past few years. And this is not this is not something that's, you know, uh, a, a big foundation decided to plop down a bunch of money for a project and see what would happen. It started from nothing and has had actually very, very minimal funding. It's just mostly volunteer effort doing amazing things with, with very, very few resources. It's inspiring and it's, it's thrilling to see. So Rob is somebody who has, for years, refused to get on an airplane. This is his first trip to the United States. <clears throat> and, and when I say we are fortunate to have Rob Hopkins here this evening, I truly mean it. This is, this is in, in my humble opinion, one of the world's most important, visionary, inspiring leaders. Please join me in welcoming Rob Hopkins. Thank you. My goodness. Live up to that. Um, Translocal trans organizing. I love it. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, well, um, I've, uh, I've worked out while I was sitting there waiting that I've done 13 talks in the last 11 days and uh, most of them have been pretty much the same talk so I'm really delighted not to do that talk for one night and to be able to sort of just make it up, riff a bit about things. Uh, compost, yeah. Um, I remember uh, George W. Bush once said, not every day I quote him, I have to say he once gave a, a, a talk to a load of bankers and started out by saying, people call you the elite, I call you my base. <laughs> well, you're my base. And uh, I, uh, yeah, much better, absolutely, any day of the week. And uh, I first heard about permaculture in, in uh, 1990, I think, and I was traveling uh, in Pakistan with a guy from Australia called Chris. And uh, I had no idea what permaculture was, uh, but every time we got to a village 
uh, with peach trees, he got really excited and started writing letters back to his permaculture newsletter in his town in Australia. I thought, what is this permaculture thing all about? And he tried to explain and it went over my head. And then when I got home, a friend of mine gave me a designer's manual, Bill Mollison's uh, magnum opus. I thought, this is amazing. I'd been involved in kind of campaigns and activism stuff and lobbying stuff, a lot of it about trying to stop new roads being built through beautiful bits of English countryside. And uh, all of a sudden, someone was giving me a manual for earth repair. I thought, what an extraordinary concept. And it absolutely blew me away. And then I did my, des my design course. Uh, I did a diploma. And then when I moved to Ireland in, uh, in 1996, ooh, in 1996, just set about trying to do it. And we built straw bale houses and gardens and uh, uh, cob buildings and set up the first two-year full-time permaculture course in the world at the college in Kinsale. And uh, we had this most amazing principle. It was this fantastic Irish thing, which I really kind of appreciate now in hindsight, living in England, which is like health and safety mad, that we had a principle who basically, you'd go along and say, John, can we turn that piece of lawn into a forest garden? And he'd say, grand. <laughs> no design, no risk and health and safety assessment or budget. As long as that one worked, then when you go to him and say, John, could we build a straw bale house over there? Grand. <laughs> you get the gist. So as long as the last thing worked, you were fine. So we had this, this college that was just grass and grounds. Uh, and by the end of it, it had a pond, a straw bale house, a forest garden, a polytunnel, uh, uh, an orchard. And the last thing we built that was, uh, that was opened just when Richard came. In fact, Richard uh, played his violin uh, on that very stage was uh, a cob and cordwood theatre, uh, which was just fantastic. Um, and I remember, and actually numerous times, but there was a few times then when I really got a sense of the power of what we're doing with permaculture. I was thinking, it's gardens, it's buildings. There was a guy who came the first year we ran that course who was called Andrew Long, and he was about 27. And he had some terrible illness, and he kept kind of swelling up and growing enormous. And then he couldn't walk, and then he'd get terrible ulcers in his legs, and then he'd have to lie down for ages because he wasn't well, and then it would get worse. And, and he was really unwell, and him and his dad came and did the course. I think his dad kind of got a sense that he wasn't going to be around that long. And they both came and did the course together. It was a really lovely kind of bonding thing that they did. And Andrew couldn't walk very easily, but he came in every day didn't miss a class, even though when he was obviously really not very well. And after a year, uh, we didn't see him for a little bit, and then he died. And uh, the first thing that was amazing was I went to his funeral. In Ireland, funerals are a big thing. Everybody goes to the funeral, and it was in a cathedral in, uh, in Carrigaline, packed. Everybody turned out. Three quarters of what the priest said in his uh, sort of talk about Andrew was about permaculture and about how it had changed his life and how it had given him something that was his big, uh, that, that gave him a drive. And then after the funeral, his dad came up to me and said, we were clearing out his room and uh, we found he'd had all these little business cards made that said, Andrew Long, Permaculture Design Services. It was really, really sweet. And, and actually, um, yeah, and so you kind of get a sense of how powerful this stuff is. So I was then, we set up something called the Holly's Centre for Practical Sustainability. 
and we were doing co building courses and so on and so on. And it was around that time in 2004 that I got a copy of Richard's book, The Party's Over, uh, saw the end of suburbia, and uh, it was like a bomb went off in my head, really. I'd been doing all this stuff, you know, in the designer's manual, Bill Mollison says, the most ethical thing you can do is find a piece of land, build a house, grow your food for your family, do all that kind of stuff. And I thought, and I was doing that. I was building my house, I had my garden, I had my food forest, I had all this stuff going on. And I thought, well, this, isn't, this, is, this is only going to work if I'm prepared to defend it. And I'm not prepared to defend it. I don't want to be the only person with carrots. <laughs> you know, much as I like carrots. But actually, for me, the challenges that, 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 that Richard set out in his book, the challenges around climate change, at that stage, if you got on Google, and well, such as it was then, and typed in responses to peak oil, it was all great big hairy guys in the mountains heading up with small firearms and four years' worth of baked beans and toilet paper. I didn't fancy that. I looked terrible with a beard, really. I did it once. It was not good at all. So I, had, so I was thinking, well, what does it do? What do we do? And it had to be a compassionate response for me. This has to be about us all coming closer together again, rather than sort of fracturing off into smaller and smaller spaces. So then I was thinking, you know, I had, um, the tools I had to figure out what to do were permaculture tools, permaculture principles. And so for me, it's a bit like in the same way that musical uh, great leaps forward in music come when you start saying, what happens if we mix this with this? What happens if we take these James Brown records and these Led Zeppelin records and sort of mix them up a bit, what happens? You know, but actually that was where the transition idea originally came from. What happens if you try and look at peak oil through permaculture glasses? But actually the thing that was really frustrating was I, was, I felt like I was going, right, come on then permaculture, let's sort this out. But there wasn't a big sort of rally and there were three reasons I think. Firstly, because at that time, and it's changing but it's not quite there yet, it felt like actually permaculture, a lot of the people I knew in that world had all the tools but were quite happy staying in a niche. There was a sense that actually they were quite happy staying up a little misty lane making chairs out of sticks <laughs> rather than being the vanguard of the revolution building the resilience that we need. And also where was the discussion about how we scale this stuff up? I couldn't find it and it was really frustrating. And then the last thing was there was a kind of, and, this, and again this is changing, but slowly, where was the rigour in terms of, are we sure, really? I, my, an example of this was I, um, I built a greenhouse in my garden a couple of years ago and I wanted to get chickens and I wanted to put the chicken house next to the greenhouse. And those of you who are permaculture teachers know one of the first things you teach is the chicken greenhouse, yeah, the, the chickens and the heat goes and all the cycles you make by putting the chicken house next to the greenhouse. And I started asking around, saying, has anybody actually seen a working chicken greenhouse? I taught this for like 10 years, you know. Has anyone actually seen a working chicken greenhouse? Uh, I heard of one once. Uh, and I was asking, nobody had seen it. And it was like, well, why are we still teaching it then? If no one's seen one, 
why do we still, you know, where's the, where's, the, where's the evidence base for what we're teaching? We're out there teaching stuff. Well, how do we know it works? We need to kind of get a bit more rigorous, I think, and build a bit of an evidence kind of base around it. Really. So my plan was, could we build a Trojan horse? And Toby Hemingway wrote about this recently. It's cold, isn't it? You all, you all live here. You've all bought hats and blankets and all sorts of stuff. Ooh. So I thought, could we build a Trojan horse? Could we build something? Because permaculture is always a bit tricky to explain to people in the pub when they say, what's permaculture? You have to get a flip chart out and start drawing chickens and arrows and all this kind of stuff. Oh, well, fantastic. Thank you very much. Here we go. That's the wrong way around, isn't it? Oh, that's very nice. Thank you very much. Is that good? <laughs> Um, yeah, so could we build a Trojan horse that we could put that stuff in and you could wheel it past and people could go, oh yes, transition. <laughs> and inside it you've packed all the permaculture stuff and the principles and a bit of Joanna Macy and all that stuff, you know. <laughs> and it works. It seems to work. You know, so transition has become really about uh, you know, a community-led response which is about building community resilience and seeing that as a form of economic development and it started in the small town in Devon uh, where I live and it's now in 44 countries around the world thousands of communities and the thing that's been fantastic being here is meeting so many people in towns and villages and cities all across the US going yeah we're on it we like that we're doing it and thank you all so much to those of you who are doing it it's just so inspiring thank you Because the thing that's so interesting is that actually we're really, really great at imagining apocalypse. It's really easy. We do it really easily. And we make films about it and we go, oh, God. Oh, that's bad, isn't it? But actually we're terrible at imagining a tr transformation. We're terrible at imagining something great. We're terrible at visioning something, you know. But that's what we need to do. That's really where the power is, I think. Um, so I think what, what we're seeing is a really symbiotic relationship with, with transition and permaculture. And this is such a fantastic gathering. And thank you so much, everybody who's organized it and made it happen. Fantastic. Bringing everybody together. Well done. So the question for me is, how do we scale all this stuff up? You know, Richard's been talking about the situation in terms of fossil fuels. Would the world pass 400 parts per million uh, recently? The IPCC report that came out a couple of weeks ago is scary stuff. We need to scale this stuff up like really, really fast. And that's the kind of, that, that, that's been the, 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 the inquiry for me. And that's really why I'm here. You know, as, as, as Trayton said, I haven't flown uh, for seven years. And we've built a network in 44 countries without getting on an airplane. And really trying to model that stuff. Because it really matters, you can do all you want in your life in terms of reducing your lagging your loft and all that stuff. As soon as you step on a plane, you might as well have not bothered doing any of it, really. But actually, the thing that got me over was I talked to a woman who works for one of the big foundations over here, very well connected in the United Nations, very well connected politically. She said, all the people I talk to, they're saying we give it 18 months, two years, and then we give up on the idea of mitigation, and we move all our funding into adaptation. Yeah, that's like 18 months and they just, and they just decide to give up on the idea of two degrees. 
And I've got four kids. I don't, I'm not going to give up on two degrees. Two degrees is too high as it is. But it seems like as a society, we've gone from going, not a problem, not a problem, not a problem, to going, well, it's too late, isn't it? There's that bit, what happened to that bit in the middle? You don't do it in other areas of life, do you? Oh, the house is on fire. Oh, no, it's, it's not going to cut off, has it? You know, and actually, and, and that bit that was missing was that bit about, well, we can do stuff. And the power, the incredible, uncollect, you know, the collective genius that we can unlock with transition, which many of you will have seen in the places where you live, and with permaculture, you bring people together, you make stuff happen. It's why we called the book The Power of Just Doing Stuff, you know, because you really, really see that. But there's edge. The bit that I'm really interested in is the edge of how, what is the edge we need in order to really scale this up. The first one, I think, is about learning networks. How do we create networks where we can all share that experience really easily so we aren't all reinventing the wheel in our places? And those networks are building, and this, this event is a really great part of starting to build those networks so that we're all kind of pulling together and trying to make this happen. The second one is, what's the edge between transition and activism? When, it, when is it more skillful to have transition that doesn't have an activist hat on, he said, wearing an activist hat, uh, and, uh, and, and, and that does really do that. If we're trying to bring everybody on board, you know, typically the thing with transition has been to try and keep those two things apart. But you see things like Transition Heathrow in London where they're trying to stop the new third runway being built which will require demolishing an entire town called Sipson. And they've occupied a, a market garden site, turned it into a garden again, got it going. You know, there's, that edge is really exciting, I think, and interesting. The whole issue of race and class and how that works in transition uh, and the previous fantastic the, the, the urban tilth work going on really inspiring and the event with Gopal and with Pandora uh, in Oakland the other day that we did really looking at all of that you know this is really really fantastic and really really vital there's a whole thing about supporting core groups what does it look like those of you who do transition know it you know most people do it on their Wednesday evenings they do it in their spare time how do we scale this stuff up and I think one of the things that, 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 that feels like a really important thing to me is often I hear groups who say, well, you know, we try and do everything without any money and uh, we don't like to, you know, talk about funding and we don't like to bring that in. And somehow that volunteering is somehow the purest kind of thing that we can do if we want to change the world. I disagree with that. Because I think, I think there's a real tyranny of that sort of, of volunteering, actually. You know, sometimes people say, well, why is our transition group all white middle-class people? Well, if you set something up that is only based on volunteering, who are the people who've got the time to volunteer? You know, actually, if we want to be serious about this, if we're serious about creating livelihoods, creating social justice, bringing people together, this stuff needs to scale up and become people's livelihoods. Yeah, because actually a lot of people I talk to, they say, well, I spend five days a week doing a crap job that I really hate because I've got to keep the roof over my head. And, I, and, and, it's, and it's pulling me away from the things I love about transition. And on my Wednesday evenings, I try and kind of claw back a little bit by doing transition. I want to step off this conveyor belt and onto that conveyor belt because that's what needs to happen. But how do we create those livelihoods? And that is a whole kind of uh, process of... Of, of, of taking that on. There's a fantastic group of six women uh, in a place in Derbyshire and uh, they all said to me we'd spent all of our life up until that point getting as far away as we could from the idea of, of, of uh, running a business. Like hated the idea. But they were driven about local food. They'd started their local transition group. They were really interested in local food. 
So they started a social enterprise called DE4 Food, a kind of a food hub linking stuff up together. The first thing they did was they did a local food directory and found so little local food being grown that they were just too embarrassed to publish it. But actually then that was the spur and there's now all kinds of stuff going on and they're learning all this stuff. You know, just because we haven't done it before doesn't mean we can't kind of shift across. You know, I meet people who are, who are entrepreneurs. The way their brains work, I never met people whose brains work like that before. It's fantastic. They go, we put this here and that there and then that round there and you go, God, that's so clever. But they sort of seem to do it without even thinking about it really. And then the last one is how do we bring, once we get up and running, how do we bring investment in to drive this kind of stuff? Where does it come from? You know, part of the reason that I came was the invitation that we got was to go and speak to the Environmental Grant Makers Association in New Orleans a few week, couple of weeks ago. It's like some of the biggest sort of funders uh, in the US and they're saying, well, how do we support this stuff? And that's the question, you know, actually something like transition, what, do you throw loads of money at it? It would kill it. But it's sort of strategic. You have to be strategic about where that support comes in. But actually as communities, there's huge amounts we can do to raise that investment ourselves. The divestment movement is fantastic divesting from fossil fuels. But then what? Well, then what do we invest into? And actually we can divest every day we go shopping. We choose which economy we want to invest in or which economy we want to divest from. <laughs> All right. So it seems to me that, that, that well, the challenge for, for me, you know, I've, I've been involved in permaculture for however long, 20 years. And it's been around for 40 years. But the thing that frustrates me is where are the, and maybe there are some, and maybe there are some here and I just don't know about it, but it's certainly not the case in the UK. Where are the permaculture design consultancies who are bidding to design the big landscaping projects, the parks, public spaces? Where are the architects who are designing the big, who are working for the big sort of house builders saying, no, actually, you need to put an edible landscape, you know. We've been doing this 40 years, where are they? Uh, well, good. Well done. So for me, permaculture, you know, I do transition stuff and, uh, and, it's, and it's what I love doing and it's really thrilling to see and, uh, something that's just been an idea that has taken off and gained some traction. And it is something which, which is able to, because it's the Trojan horse, you can wheel past people. The president of France about a, month, a few months ago organised an event in Paris that was the first national government I know of who ran an event that was explicitly questioning economic growth and saying, where do we go from here? And at the beginning, it was great. The woman who'd organised it from the organisation, she said, um, the only problem with economic growth in France is that we haven't got any. <laughs> I thought that was fantastic. Uh, but, but we got invited to go and talk about transition. In, and, and it's like, this is, enough, this is really, really fascinating. There's something about it that's able to sort of come in under the radar in that sense. And, if you, and, and so for me, permaculture is my kind of grounding, like I said, it's my base. At home, I grow food. My kids have always grown up around food being grown, uh, harvesting stuff, a greenhouse. Uh, we've got a small a peach tree in the greenhouse that every time it fruits, we bring it in and cut it neatly into six little slices and all have a little piece. <laughs> Um, which means I'm very jealous going to look around Richard's garden today full of all this stuff that in England it just you never grow. It's very infuri infuriating. <laughs> Recently I got the designer's manual down off the shelf and looked at the last chapter, which is called something like Strategies for a Sustainable Nation or something, which is really, which at the time is really, really visionary. And it kind of, if he tries to pull all the stuff together about economics and business and the whole kind of thing together, 
But actually reading through it now, I was thinking actually the problem with it is that it's very kind of rooted in, in alternative culture. You know, it's all about how do we make sort of eco-villages and tribal this, that and the others and stuff. And a lot of the things that actually stop this becoming something that can go mainstream very quickly. And I think there's been lots of learning since then uh, in terms of how we do that. And I just wanted to tell you just a couple of stories from what transition groups are doing. Uh, so um, one of them is, is, is the Bristol Pound. So in the city of Bristol, there have many, been many local currencies uh, throughout history, and many of them, many of them here. And, and so the stuff we've been doing has very much been inspired by things like the Berkshire scheme and Ithaca hours, these kind of uh, pioneering things. The Bristol Pound is now in the city of Bristol, city of 800,000 people. Uh, you, have a, you have beautiful printed notes, but you also have a pay-by-text scheme where you walk into a shop, you pay the shopkeeper, his phone goes ping, and then that's your transaction done. It's kind of revolutionised it, really. The, sit, the mayor of the city now takes his full salary in Bristol pounds. Yeah. You can spend them on the buses. You can pay your council tax with them. You can pay your, all your kind of rates and stuff with the council with them. It's a real game changer. You'll soon be able to pay your energy bills with them. Yeah. It's scaling up. All the other kind of councils across uh, the country are starting to look at it and go, oh, we could do that. It's a real game changer. And actually, people have said to me, in most of the talks I've done over the last couple of weeks here, have said, well, wh when does the blowback start? What does it look like when the sort of forces of darkness mobilize against something like the Bristol Pound? The power of it is, if they want to mobilize against the Bristol Pound, they don't come after us, they go after the city council. Because the city council will defend that because they love it. And they see it as a real part of the economic development of the city. In Brixton, in South London, very diverse, uh, deprived part of, of, of South London, uh, one of the things from Transition Brixton uh, was Brixton Energy, community-owned energy company, cooperative, owned by local people for the benefit of local people. The idea was how can we put renewable energy in place in such a way that it benefits the people of this, of, of, of this area here. The first share launch they did, they needed to raise £70,000 in shares from local people. The majority, large majority of the shares were bought by kind of white, middle-class, trendy Brixton people, kind of green-leaning people. But what the money did was it, it raised a kind of a, a pot for energy efficiency in the buildings. It, raised, it trained local people from the estate in how to become solar energy installers. It meant when they did their second share launch, Brixton Energy 2, they raised about £70,000 and about a third of it came from people on the estate, shifting their savings into it because it was a better investment than just leaving it in the bank. By the time they did the third one, the large majority of the money was coming from people on the estate. The word was kind of out, this is a good thing, this is ours, this is fantastic. When I stood on the top of a building with the guy who set it up, a guy called Agamemnon Otero, who is, I never met an Agamemnon before, he's fantastic. He said, we're going to do all of this. Look at our hundreds of thousands of rooftops, we're going to do all of this. So there's no sense of, well, we'll do a little bit and then we'll see how it goes. We're going to do all of this. And when Ed Davey, who's the Secretary of State for Climate Change in the UK, decided he was going to announce what he called a community renewables revolution for the UK, where 3% of renewables are locally owned, community owned, whereas in Germany it's about 50%. Community renewables revolution, where did he choose to launch it? On that rooftop in Brixton. Because they hadn't waited for permission from anybody. They had got on with it. They had thought, we are the cavalry who comes riding to our own rescue, thank you very much. We're going to get on with it. In my town, I'm doing a, involved with a project uh, uh, which is about bringing assets into community ownership. Development is something that gets done to us all the time. 
We don't get any say over it. Whether it's a refinery, whether it's housing, we have no say over it. Developing well, so, so what we, there's an eight-acre site next to our railway station. We've run a six-year campaign to bring that site into community ownership. We've blocked every attempt that the owner has made to try and do other things with it. We sat down with them. We said, anybody else tries to go for planning permission on that site, we'll mobilise hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who will block any planning application on that site. We can do that. We can unlock the value for that site for you. Nobody else can. And we sat down with our, with our MP, and she leant across the table and said to them, as far as this town is concerned, that's what's happening on this site. Where do we go from there? It's taken us six years to sign a heads of terms with them, and the idea is now that the community leads that development, the community owns the site, the community designs what it wants to do there, and we set a target of building with 80% local materials as a way of stimulating a whole kind of economic regeneration on that site, teaching those skills, and on a scale where we can scale up the kind of straw bale cob construction that you can see so beautifully here on this site, onto a scale where it's viable and we can really show that that works and that's how we create livelihoods for people. And I'm starting a brewery, which is the one I'm really excited about. <laughs> because the thing that I love is the idea of what would it look like if you had a, if you had a, a community-owned craft brewery as a catalyst for, a, for a, a, a new economy in a town? What would it look like if... I'm going to get really carried away now here, because this is great. What would, it, what would it be like if you had a brewery where every new beer that you bought out as a bottled beer was about supporting somebody into creating new enterprise for the town? So if my friend here was starting a, um, I don't know, a, a CSA project, for example, then actually uh, you might have a, a beer that was called something like, you know, I don't know, you'd have a name for it that would be to do it. And on the side it would say something like, uh, 30 pence from every sale this goes towards helping so-and-so launch their enterprise. So just by supporting that local business, you're kind of building a portfolio of investments in new businesses. One of the things that touches me the most is every year we do this thing called a Local Entrepreneurs Forum, which anybody could do, which says everybody in this town is a potential investor in the new economy of this place. Whether you lend someone a pen, whether you lend them $20,000, whether you let them use the shed at the bottom of your garden, whatever, you're investing uh, in that business. We have four people come along uh, with the ideas of what they're doing. They stand up, they present what they're doing. People in the community ask them questions, and then at the end of that, people pledge to help. I'll give you £100. I love that. That's fantastic. We had these uh, four women setting up a community-supported running a market garden. They wanted to turn into a CSA scheme. They came along needing £1,000. They went home with £3,500, 30 members of a box scheme they hadn't even launched yet, offer of promotional help, accounting help. That's what it looks like when a community comes together and makes that economy happen. So I have no idea whether we can turn this around in time, but I think there's still a chance that we can. There's still a window that we can. If we're going to do it, we have to get serious, we have to scale up, we have to learn skills that we may have spent our life up until now of running away from. We have to sometimes change our language, the way we present what we do. I didn't even have a shirt until I started doing transition. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, when I have a shirt on, the door's open that never opened before. And actually for me, it's something which is really about how do we get serious, how do we scale up, and how do we unleash the genius around us and really address these most challenging but most delicious and fascinating of times. Thank you so much, and thank you for all that you do. Thank you.
on, give a standing ovation for this man.